invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. I know the reading was from 24, and that's where we're going to end. Yes. Exodus 20, verse 18, through chapter 24, verse 11. It will be a world's record for Todd Kindy. <laughs> Maybe not quite. We did a survey once. Um, that is a Bible survey. Uh, before we jump into that text, though, I do have one more sign-up, so to speak. Um, Barb Heller is going to be leading the ladies' Bible study on Tuesday mornings coming up uh, in September. And they've got a pretty neat study about Christ. Uh, uh, and in order to get those materials, you can let her know that you plan to attend and we can get the right kind of materials, the right number of materials, all right? Uh, Exodus chapter 20, this, this is the law. And we wonder, we're, we're New Testament people. What does the Old Testament have to do for us? In fact, even downstairs, so far in the summer series, there have been no bagels. <laughs> bagels are Old Covenant, donuts are New Covenant. I think that's the way that it goes. What, what, does, what does the Old Covenant stuff, you know, dealing with ethnic, national Israel, have to do with us today? Now, there's a lot of confusion in our world today, in, in our world, I say, our national world, because we have tended to have an idea uh, of American exceptionalism. We have tended to use biblical language to describe the American promised land. And entailed with that, sometimes are using Old Testament passages to quote-unquote prove that, verify that, become a foundation. And increasingly today, there is um, a blurring, confusion, even distortion of biblical theology and the church with the nation and patriotism. Now, we're for patriotism, good biblical kind of patriotism. We're all from a country of one kind or another. And God has placed us there. And Acts chapter 7 says, God indeed put us there in a specific country. Now, we shouldn't get too hoity-toity and proud uh, in a wrong way of being American because we are only by virtue of the fact that God put us here and not in another country. And we dare not become like the Pharisees and say, well, I'm sure glad God didn't make me like the people in that country. That, that, that's totally conflicting with the biblical worldview. But how do we take the Old Testament properly, appropriately, and bring it into our lives as New Testament, Jesus-believing Christians? Well, it is, first of all, to acknowledge that this was written to ethnic national Israel. This is a, a law code, a constitution, as it were, for the nation, for the people. And so much of the application is going to fit the land. It's going to fit a particular place, a particular government. Now, one day Jesus will come and he'll be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the, the greater seed of David. And he will establish a rule and reign of righteousness on this earth that will surpass any other kind of kingdom. God will reign. That day's coming. But th this, this unit is kind of large, isn't it? Uh, chapter 20, verse, verse 18, all the way through 24, verse 11. But there's a bit of a bracket around it. Uh, 
at the end of chapter 20, we have this idea of the presence of God. And the, the people are trembling in the presence of God and calling for a mediator. Moses, you stand for us in the presence of God. And Moses says, yeah, you're, you're right. Don't get too close. God's testing you to see whether you actually have the fear of the Lord. And by chapter 24, uh, verses 9, 10, and 11, now Moses and the 70 elders and the priesthood, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, are, are entering into the presence of the Lord. And not only entering the presence of the Lord, they behold him in his glory. The the pavement as of sapphire before the throne of God, and a description that is in Ezekiel and his vision of being at the throne room, the presence of God's glory. And Moses is there. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders are there. Every elder meeting we have is like this. We wish. That's what we long for. But in a sense, the gathering of God's people is in His glorious presence because of a greater mediator than even Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, allows us to come into the glorious presence of the eternal Father and to not just be there, but to commune with Him, to eat, to drink, to feast as we sang in an earlier song, to feast in his presence. Well, that and then also the altar theme and concept. Uh, Just after um, that description in chapter 20 of the people's response of fear and trembling, uh, the Lord gives instructions about how to build altars to worship the Lord. And again, by that section in chapter 24, just before they enjoy fellowship with God, Moses builds an altar to those specifications that he might worship God. And so those are just two motifs, two themes that bracket this whole unit. And I want to show you that just so you know I'm not just making up willy-nilly where to start and where to stop. The, The Word of God is beautifully arranged. I shared this with our Sunday evening group last week. Uh, as we look at the themes, uh, the structures uh, of the book of Revelation. So here you begin to see that there is a purpose to the way the words of Scripture are given to us. And we believe in the every word-inspired view of the Bible, the Word of God. Every word is from the mouth of God. It is God-breathed. It is Without error, it can be trusted. It's divine. And with that, every word means the structure has a beauty in its arrangement. This is important. I love it. Um, Well, let's, let's walk through this section. The content of this unit is really centered around a word covenant, though it's only used but at the end. In fact, this section is sometimes called the book of the covenant, but another way we might think of it is the blood of the covenant. We're going to look at covenant commands, which is the biggest section, then we're going to look at covenant conquest and then covenant confirmation. Covenant commands, chapter 
20, verse 22, all the way through chapter 23 and verse 19. And here are the main themes. God instructs his people how to build altars that they might worship the Lord. And then he gives us instruction about slaves, how we're to treat them. He gives instruction about injury to life. What happens when someone gets hurt or even someone is accidentally killed or someone intentionally murdered? How do we deal with this in a just way? Restitution uh, for life and limb, for property, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and that sort of thing. But then there's social justice, societal justice, and we can get a little nervous with that term social justice, the way it's used and bantered around today, but there, there are aspects of this right here in the Old Covenant, the way Israel was to live as a nation, societal justice, how to treat one another, how do you treat foreigners, how do you treat immigrants, and on it goes. And then it, it rounds out again with worship. It begins and ends with worship. Here are the Sabbath and the festivals with which we honor the God who saved us. And that, again, is the basis for this relationship. They've been redeemed. They've been brought out of slavery in Egypt to become a nation. Now, being redeemed out of Egypt is not the same kind of salvation that we talk about when we say we've been justified that is, our sins are forgiven that we might have a right standing before God. That is a prominent way in which we to understand New Testament salvation, but there are other kinds of salvation that don't have to do with your eternal well-being or destiny, but you can be saved from your enemies. David would pray this. You can be saved from sickness. You can be saved from other elements of turmoil and dilemma in life. Israel was saved from real slavery. Real slavery. They had a master that was ruling over them not nicely. Well, in this section, the, the ten words, as we saw earlier in chapter 22, or the ten commandments, get unpacked a little bit further. This is case law. This is examples of how do you rule justly those ten words, those ten commandments. It unpacks it. There's a, there's a moral symmetry to this. The biblical laws are based on the principle of the punishment should match the crime. Again, that phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and that comes to the area of restitution. But the whole of the law has this kind of symmetry and equality, if it were. There's a sanctity of life, and you can see that in some of these. How do you treat other people? Be they foreigners, be they slaves, be, they, be it, be it the, the injuries to life. There's a sanctity, there's a value placed on the individual human life. There's a value placed on the structure of family. And with this also, these laws, there's also a uh, the preservation of justice. Uh, it's a system to avoid the abuse of laws, the abuse of, of a legal system. The safeguards are built into this legislation to prevent abuse and misuse, to prevent injustice. So, for example, in the, the laws that would talk about self-defense and someone breaking and entering into the home, there are stipulations about 
when it's appropriate to use capital force or life force to such a threat. And if you step outside of that, then um, you step outside the cover of darkness, so to speak. There, there is a, a, a safeguard against someone using breaking and entering as a pretense for murder. Using, using self-defense as an excuse to take someone out. The, the laws are developed and defined this way. Well, altars, chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. And we won't, we won't hone in too deftly on, on any one of these because we, we do want to get to Christ. We want to get to the New Testament. But here you can read about altars and um, prominently the Lord says, I have talked with you. I have talked with you. Verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold and silver. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, two different kinds, your sheep, your oxen, and every place I go, my name will be remembered. And if you make me an altar of stone, you will not build it of hewn stones. There's no cutting tool, no chiseling. You will, if you wield a tool on it, you will profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar that you'd be exposed. Now, this is for a people that are traveling. So it's very practical in a sense. It's very earthy. You know, you don't have to have stones. You can use earth to build it. They don't know where they're going to be wandering and they don't know yet that it'll be 40 years because of their own, their own rebellion. There's an earthiness to this. There's a simplicity to it. And there's, think of this as elementary school training for the people. This is ingraining in them and teaching them not to get caught up with the ornateness of their own imagination of what something could be beautiful in terms of worship. He'll give them instructions about the ornateness of the tabernacle and the temple. He'll give them a beauty. He's going to provide craftsmen to, to build that structure in all of its beauty and glory. But right now, the people need to know that they don't worship the imaginations and machinations of their own hands, lest they fall into an idolatry, a graven image, the wrong view and concept of what God is like. But notice he says very clearly, I talked with you. What is the image that we have? What is the revelation of God that we have? His very word. And his word is enough. His word is sufficient. Did we not just sing that? From Psalm 150. Don't you love the, the modern renditions of the Psalter? Psalm 150. Paraphrasing the scriptures. It talks about how we were formed from the dust of the earth by the very breath of God. The Ruach, the Spirit of God. The Word is enough. 
the word is enough. Chapter 21 goes into talking about slaves. And this concept of slavery was to be different than what was in the rest of the nations. Certainly was intended to be different than our own national experience. In fact, look at verses 1 to 4 from, from this section. Um, these are the rules that we set before. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he'll serve you six years and in the seventh he'll go free. Well, that's different, huh? Freedom. And Israel is to remember that they once were slaves, never to be allowed to go free, but that God redeemed them. And so they are never, ever to treat other people the way they had been treated. In principle, we, we could spiritualize this very quickly and very easily. You're, you're a sinner that's been forgiven. Remember that you've been forgiven. Don't ever, ever treat anybody as unforgiven by you. You need to be forgiving as your Heavenly Father is forgiving. Well, that's just a little practicality from the issue of slavery. Verse 12, chapter 21, goes on to talk about the value of life and what happens with injury to life. There's, again, murder, accidents, abuse, even abortion. Chapter 21, verses 22 to 25, it's an unusual circumstance, but it, it's the principle that we're looking at. This is case law. These are examples of how we protect life, how we do not murder. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, her children come out, but there is no harm, uh, the one who hit her shall surely be fined restitution financially, but as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The harm of children in the womb, the killing of children in the womb is covered here. And it is a capital crime should the outcome be death. Now, the whole e equity of justice is kind of summarized in this verse, isn't it? Verses 23, uh, verses 23 to 25. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. There is to be real justice, not exorbitant enforcement, punishments and penalties, but right and equitable judgments and penalties. We read this and think, well, I got to get my tooth back. We're in a very litig litigious society, aren't we? You owe me. Pay for damages. And there is, again, a justice to that. But here the emphasis is on the justness I think in our, our American mentality, it's I'm going to get as much as I can rather than what's equal, what's fair, what's just.
Here the law is a protection for both sides. It's a protection for those that are harmed, but it's also a protection against extortion. Uh, chapter 21, verse 33, and on into chapter 22, verse 15, a lengthier section dealing with restitution, property. The loss of property is to be restored value for value. Again, there's this factoring in of the motive for the loss, if it's thievery or if it's an accident, if it's willful um, negligence and... Uh, oh, oh. Vandalism, that's the word I'm trying to think of. The motive factors into the restitution. Whether it's an accident or intentional. Social justice, public life. Chapter 22, verse 16 into chapter 23 and verse 9. Another large section. How do you deal with people in public? And again, it reminds the Israelites that they were once strangers in Egypt. 23 verse 9. They're to be caring toward those that are vulnerable, toward the weak. The aliens, that'd be the immigrants, the widows, the orphans, the needy, the poor. There is a concern in the legal system for total impartiality. We don't simply judge a book by its cover so to speak. We look to see what's going on inside the person and treat them as a person. We're dealing with moral imperatives rather than detailed laws. These are case studies. And the commands here are to encourage a standard of behavior that goes beyond the letter of the law. The law has always been pointing toward love. This is why Jesus legitimately can summarize the law as love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 23, verses 10 to 19 go on to talk about uh, not just worship, but rest. God built into their life and a, a respect for time and the movements of time and life. And he built into it seasons of rest every Sabbath. Did you notice that even within the, the slave principles, the Sabbath was inherent? Every seventh year, that one is free to go, free from labor. Free from the master. Every seven days, we are to rest. And three times a year, there are festivals. This is, this is against the oppressive management that they had under Pharaoh in Egypt when there was no rest. These festivals are a means of goodness for the people and goodness for for the poor, give them a break. And it's a reminder every time we pause and rest that our fruitfulness, our productivity, our industriousness, our entrepreneurship, as we discussed earlier this morning, 
is a gift from the Lord. Your life is dependent upon the beneficence of God more than the work of your hands. Only that he would bless the work of your hands. So you do not bow down to idols of prosperity, of fertility, of sexuality. Well, th that's a summation of the covenant commands. There's plenty there. But let's go on to chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. And, and here we have a promise from the Lord. A promise that God would be with them. It says in chapter 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way that you go to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And he goes on to say, I will drive out the Canaanites before you. I'll do it gradually so that the land isn't barren and desolate and so that you're not overwhelmed with all the work that there has to be done. I keep losing children at home and the yard gets bigger. The Lord has not, I guess he's been kind of gradual about it. I'm just really slow to catch on. God is gracious and he allows Israel to enter the land, but he goes carefully, progressively, lest they be overwhelmed, lest the land become desolate. This angel of the Lord. In the Bible, we've been introduced to this angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord visited Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaid in Genesis 16. This angel of the Lord visited Abraham in Genesis 22. Here in Exodus 23, we're told that the name of the Lord is in him. Well, we, we were told at that encounter of Moses at the burning bush, the name of the Lord was revealed to Moses in that manifestation of the glory of God, of the holiness of God. I believe categorically this angel of the Lord is the manifestation of God himself. Yahweh, the Lord, just as he appeared to Hagar, to Abraham, to Jacob. In fact, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 into 15, you get the encounter that's anticipated here. Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? What an American. God is on our side. Wrong question. I don't know how you pray for your football teams or baseball teams, but it's the wrong question. Verse 14, Joshua 5. The angel of the Lord, well, this man at this point says, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Only the Lord God is to receive worship, even to ask for worship. And Joshua has that Moses encounter, doesn't he? The place you're standing is holy ground. Remove your sandals and get on your face. This angel of the Lord is the Lord himself, and I suppose it raises, it raises a question. How is it that, that God favors Israel over the Canaanites? Oh my, look at the time. Guess we'll have to wait. No, I'll, I'll try to go quick. God doesn't show favoritism. God is not capricious. God told Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 16 that the descendants of Abraham would go back into the land eventually, 400 years later. He'll go back there in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this is only part of the whole answer, but it's a significant part. God judges the nations even as he blesses the nations. And not only would God judge the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites as a whole, he would judge Nineveh in the ministry of Jonah. He would judge Babylon in their destruction as the Persians come in. He would judge Persia with the coming of Greece. He would judge Greece with the coming of Rome. He would judge Rome with the coming of the Vandals, the Vikings. No amen for the Norwegians today. And he would judge Israel. He doesn't treat Israel different than the other nations in regard to their sin. He, he boots them out of the land too. God is fair. God is equitable. God is just. And know this, any and every nation, God raises and God brings down. God blesses and God judges every nation. But God is preserving Israel in order to provide for the seed that was promised, the Messiah that would be a blessing to all the nations. It never was only about Israel. Israel was simply the instrument in the plan of God to get Jesus through a kingly line. It had to be some human. God chose Abraham, David, Mary and Joseph. This promise is here and God will indeed bring his people into the land. And then there is this confirmation, and this is the section that we read. This must be a sign. 
Look at this. We read about the worship. We read about this confirmation of the covenant. There's a word from the Lord to the leaders, to the elders. It begins, this whole section began with worship and it ends with worship. That should say something to us. All of life, all of life's provisions are covered, surrounded with worship. Note the re re repeated emphasis throughout this whole section. I know we couldn't read the whole thing, but Exodus chapter 20 uh, Verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me. Exodus 22 and verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. 22, verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone will be devoted to destruction. Chapter 22, verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. Oops. You will devote your firstborn of your family, sons, and of your, of your flocks and your herds to the Lord. Verse 31, you will be consecrated to me. Chapter 23, uh, verse 13, make no mention of the names of other gods or let it be heard on your lips. Chapter 23, verse 24, you shall not bow down to the gods of Canaan and serve them. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. And one last, Exodus 23, verse 32, you shall make no covenant with the Canaanites or their gods.